Good evening. I'm Russ Germain, and this is Ideas. The adaptive strategies of nature are not applied to the sustaining of human communities. And what's really interesting is that this works in the short run, but there isn't a single civilization that hasn't ended up with the ultimate loss of its topsoils, the breakdown of its forests, its ability to feed itself, and what have you. And so that a lot of the rise and fall of civilizations is based on stresses that have been created by defying what I consider the basic criteria of design. The environmental crisis has become daily news. Acid rain, erosion of soil, accumulation of toxic wastes, low-level radiation, the list goes on and on. Industrial society is receiving constant messages from its natural environment that something is radically wrong. And if it is not soon set right, we will simply reenact the collapse of earlier civilizations. Tonight, we focus on this ecological crisis in the second program of our series, Between Two Ages. This series is prepared and presented by David Cayley. If there is ever to be a new age, it will certainly be founded on the science of ecology. This is because ecology studies the relationship of our technologies to the environments of which they are a part. It therefore addresses the fact that in contemporary societies, misapplied technology has become literally a cancer in both the natural and the social worlds. What the study of ecology reveals is that ultimately, the social and the natural worlds are the same world and can only be understood if considered in this holistic way. This way of seeing things implies a virtual cultural revolution. For a long time we have considered ourselves the exiled children of a sky god who endowed us with the earth to use at our pleasure. We have seen divinity as external to ourselves and ourselves as external to nature. As a result, we are now confronted with a crisis in our relationship to the natural world so fundamental that it is probably not too dramatic to say that we must either change or watch any hope of further social progress be blighted. Ecology is not only a way of understanding our problem, it is also a way of discovering their solution. It is an implicitly political as well as a physical science. And as a political science, it offers us a parable of regeneration. The image of a society reconstructed into autonomous regional communities linked in a planetary network of communication. To realize such a vision implies a still almost unimaginable reversal in the linear trend of our development thus far. And yet such a reversal is almost certainly coming. The question is whether it will come by conscious choice or by collapse. What we need to do is integrate technological processes with natural processes. It is a question of fit. 
Discovering this fit is the mandate of the New Alchemy Institute on Cape Cod, where an ecological science of design is being worked out. One of the first embodiments of this infant science is called a bio-shelter, a building which is also a miniaturized ecosystem capable of controlling its own climate, recycling its own wastes, and producing some of its own food. John Todd is the co-founder of New Alchemy, and it is his view that we must now begin to design as nature designs. Contemporary human societies, when they try to solve their problems, whether it's treating their waste or feeding themselves or providing energy or designing a house, actually do it in a way that nature would consider counter-sustainable. For example, nature, when it attempts to build something, whether it's a cell within your body or your body or the ecosystem within which you live or even the bioregion of which you are part, makes itself or comprises itself of units which have two qualities. One, they are autonomous. For example, all of the building blocks in nature are relatively autonomous. They're able to carry out all of the functions necessary for life. But at the same time that they're autonomous, they also have this exquisite interdependence where one level of organization in a balanced way feeds another level of organization. So what you have, as in ancient alchemy, is kind of a mirror image of the, in the organelle, in the cell, of the cell itself. And then the cell is in turn a mirror image of the organism of which it's a part. And then that organism is in fact reflects the same kinds of design as the ecosystem in which that organism is a part. The only difference now is the connection between the elements are more spread out. And then finally the ecosystem carries on the same qualities that one finds in the bioregion of which it's a part. So here is this very balanced relationship between autonomous elements and interdependency. Whereas when we try and solve problems, whether it's any one of those things that I've mentioned, we don't create autonomous subunits. We tend to not have completeness until all of the bits and pieces are put together. Uh, to give you an example, if one was to design a household sewage system in the image of nature, what would happen is that fresh water would come into that household, but within the household itself, all of its waste would be purified. So what left that household was fresh water that had been purified within. Now what we try and do is to shunt out somewhere else those wastes and then hope that the living world or some technological manifestation of it can, can clean it up for us. The same problems that John Todd and his colleagues have addressed on a household level we find writ large in our agriculture. Rather than considering agricultural wastes as integral to the system in which they are produced, we have disposed of them separately and often far from their point of origin. We think nothing of transporting food for thousands of miles, and it is probably a relatively common occurrence for trucks to pass each other on our highways going in opposite directions and carrying identical foods. Yet these foods are attacks on the fertility of the soils in which they were grown. What we are finding in consequence is a steady reduction in the fertility of our agricultural soils. Dr. Stuart Hill is an associate professor of entomology 
and an advisor to the Ecological Agriculture Project at the McDonald College campus of McGill University. Our system is not returning organic wastes to the soil in an adequate amount. Basically, the natural system is a cyclical system. That is just like a tree grows, produces leaves, the leaves fall down onto the ground, and the leaves are broken down by the decomposer organisms, bugs and so forth in the soil, and then taken up again through the roots of the plant as minerals, and so the cycle goes on round. Now in our agricultural system, instead of being circular, quite a lot of it has become linear, that is that we produce crops which feed animals, and then some of the crops and some of the animal products are taken to the city, and the waste, instead of being returned to the land, is either burnt in incinerators and causes air pollution, or is passed through a sewage system, or not a sewage system, and into the river, causing water pollution, or is dumped in non-productive land as landfill, causing land pollution. So this very material that we should be using to maintain the system as fertilizer, essentially, is being thrown away as waste. And so the result of this is that gradually the organic matter content of the soil is decreasing. And the, this material is not only fertilizer, but also is important in maintaining the structure of the soil and holding it together. Because as the organic matter breaks down, uh, glues or gums are produced as byproducts of the activity of bacteria and other small organisms in the soil, which essentially stick the soil together so that it doesn't collapse when it rains or doesn't blow away when the wind blows. So that without that organic matter going back, the soil becomes much more uh, susceptible to erosion of wind and water. And that is what is increasing. If you take uh, continuous corn, for example, which is grown in quite a lot of parts of the country, um, you can lose as much as 20 tons of topsoil per acre per year from that, from that area. But uh, if you look at the natural production of soil from the breakdown of the underlying rock, we're only producing one or two tons of topsoil per acre per year. So there can often be a net loss of 18 tons of topsoil per acre per year. Now that obviously can't go on forever. In fact, as Stuart Hill recognizes, it can't go on for very much longer at all. In less than a century of farming on the prairies, we have already lost, in effect exported, fully half the fertility of the soil, according to the estimates of soil scientists. Other areas with light sandy soils, like Prince Edward Island, are showing similar problems. At this point, it is not at all far-fetched to suggest that we will eventually turn our vaunted breadbasket into a desert if we continue to use up what we might call our biological capital at the present rate. The deterioration of our soils is mirrored in a worldwide deterioration in all the biological systems on which our economies depend. Fresh water and clean air, forests and oceans, grasslands and croplands. We are presently taxing all of these systems beyond their regenerative capacity. And if we continue to try and overcome relative scarcities, by increasing the rate of exploitation, we will eventually engender absolute scarcities. Lester Brown is the author of Transition, 
the worldwide effort to create a sustainable society and a member of the World Watch Institute in Washington, D.C. What biologists are very much aware of is that any given uh, biological system, whether it's a forest or a grassland or a fishery, can sustain a certain offtake or yield or harvest. But if the, uh, if the harvest goes beyond a certain point, uh, sort of crosses the uh, sustainability threshold, then you begin to consume the, uh, the biological resource base itself. Um, in many local situations around the world, we have already reached that point. Um, I think it's fair to say that overfishing is now the rule, not the exception, in oceanic fisheries, for example. In a great many third world countries, the uh, demand on forests has reached the point where, where forests are shrinking very rapidly. In the uh, northern uh, temperate zone industrial countries of North America, Europe, Japan, we have stabilized the area in forests, but have done it by importing a great deal of tropical uh, woods, for example, for use in, in, in various uh, industries. So we've stabilized our forested area, but uh, at the expense of uh, very rapid deforestation in the tropics. Um, what happens after a point is, uh, if, you, if you put it in, in economic terms, uh, is that you begin consuming uh, capital along with interest. As long as you consume only the interest, then the capital base, the productive base, remains intact. Uh, but beyond the point, uh, then you're, you're in trouble. And for uh, a great many locations in the world now, we are consuming capital along with interest. And it, uh, it raises interesting uh, questions of intergenerational equity, of how much our generation consumes and, and how much is left uh, of the productive resource uh, base for our children. of this piece is cheap oil. From it we have been able to construct a kind of high-octane anti-nature, and so we have not needed to seek in the natural world for the information we need to construct sustainable societies. To find an ecological science of design, says John Todd, we need first to reevaluate our attitude towards other life forms. There is not the kind of reverence towards the living world that acknowledges that we are partners, but that the partnership is equal. There is also not the kind of understanding of the living world that allows most people to realize what it can do to help us. And this, this seems to be true throughout at least historical times. In other words, the kinds of things that living beings can do, whether they're algae or bacteria or animals or trees, for us is extraordinary, but we don't know them very well. We have been always capable of sidestepping them and infusing massive amounts of energy, whether it's petroleum or water through aqueducts or what have you, to be able to get along in the short run. I know most people, when they think about working with nature, they have some kind of crude image of a Stone Age culture. They don't really have the sense that Working with nature is a way of discovering the sustainable and most profound way of doing things. It may, ironically enough, take space colonies to finally get this message home. The awareness of nature, which John Todd talks about, is certainly dawning in some quarters. 
but by and large his suggestion that we have been able to sidestep the issue through massive infusions of power remains the pertinent one. And as the oil runs out, the temptation is to seek new ways of feeding our energy addiction rather than overcoming it. Already we see the search for new energy sources infringing on other vital areas of the economy. In both the US and Brazil, for example, distillation of agricultural products into alcohol fuels has created a major source of competition for agricultural land, management and capital. Lester Brown of the World Watch Institute. Throughout the, uh, the modern period, uh, since World War II particularly, the energy sector has uh, strongly supported uh, efforts to increase food production. But now we're beginning to see that change because as oil reserves dwindle and we begin looking around for liquid fuels, one of the most uh, obvious uh, existing technologies is to produce alcohol from agricultural commodities, whether that be um, sugarcane or, or cereals or almost any other uh, starchy uh, agricultural commodity. The difficulty here is that we suddenly, as we begin to build distilleries uh, to produce uh, fuel-grade alcohol from agricultural commodities, we set up a competition between the world's automobiles um, and, the, and the world's uh, people for the same uh, resources. Now, in Brazil, where they're moving very rapidly to develop an alcohol-fuel-based uh, uh, transportation system, the officials claim that uh, they're trying to do this with additional land and not the uh, same land that would produce food. But the reality is that in, um, in the marketplace, there is no way of separating the two un un unless you segregate all the inputs that uh, go into, uh, into agricultural production, which they're not uh, in, a, in a position to do and wouldn't be in a position to do unless they had an entirely controlled, centrally planned economy. Um, and, and so what we're seeing is um, sugarcane uh, production expanding very rapidly to be used to uh, produce alcohol fuel, but uh, competing for land, for water, for um, agricultural management, um, for uh, agricultural credit, for uh, uh, agricultural technical advisors, uh, etc. Here in the United States, we've adopted um, a very uh, generous subsidy for uh, uh, distillers who will convert uh, agricultural commodities into alcohol that can be mixed with gasoline in the form of gasohol. And what we're doing is um, creating uh, a new source of competition uh, for these foodstuffs. Alcohol distilleries uh, are being built in the United States at a very rapid uh, pace now. Uh, almost every day, uh, plans for new distillery are announced uh, somewhere in the country, whether it's uh, potatoes or, uh, or corn or uh, sugar beets or sugar cane or uh, whatever. Um, agricultural commodities are now being converted into fuel for automobiles. And I don't think any of the importing countries that, uh, that import food from North America have yet grasped the significance of the uh, alcohol fuels program and the extent of the uh, diversion of grain into that. Uh, but the chances are that uh, it's going to reduce uh, the, the grain available for export from North America very substantially over the next few years, below what it uh, would otherwise be. The conversion of food to fuel, as Lester Brown says, pits cars against people. Conversion to nuclear power ups the ante still further by pitting the present generation against future generations as a result of the longevity of reactor wastes and the long-term threat from low-level radiation. In France and Germany, where more people are living at closer quarters with more reactors than we are in North America, the adverse reaction to nuclear power is already intense, and the anti-nuclear movement has become a political rallying point. In North America, the same thing is happening, 
although still on a smaller scale. Jim Harding is part of the anti-nuclear movement in Saskatchewan, where he teaches at the University of Regina, and he argues that nuclear power is the last ditch in the effort to sustain inherently unsustainable industrial societies. The great thrust towards nuclear energy in the Western capitalist countries parallels the loss of a cheap energy supply from the Middle East oil countries. In that sense, the anti-nuclear movement also merges with the, the earlier anti-imperialist consciousness that was uh, developed in the anti-war movement, a recognition that those of us who do live in the Western European and North American countries are by and large in a highly privileged position relative to the rest of the world, uh, consuming most of the resources, wasting a massive amount of the resources, and the drive to nuclear energy can be seen as an attempt to conserve that industrial system of privilege. I mean, the struggle between the anti-nuclear movement and the pro-nuclear forces is often in terms of uh, conservation. And the anti-nuclear movement in being opposed to waste and all the pollution attached to waste is arguing for redirection of the economy to be more equal in relation to the rest of the world, whereas the drive to nuclear and electrification is an attempt to somehow maintain the same level of industry and level of waste and planned obsolescence and everything that goes with that. Nuclear power not only reinforces the present scale of industrial organization, it also requires it in the first place. In this sense, it also stands as a symbol for the destructive uses of centralized power. It would be impossible to marshal the resources, both in terms of massive capital that has to be accumulated, a massive organization of labor and technology without a near monopoly capitalism, with a state that was playing a very supportive role to planning and production. Nuclear energy would be impossible without that economic structure. Uh, it would be un you know, unthinkable in an earlier period of capitalism. And in that sense, nuclear energy is not an application of pure science at all. I mean, there's clearly various parts of physics and, and engineering and such that are, are part of the whole nuclear energy. But the fact that they have become organized in that way has more to do with economic power and political power being centralized. And I would see nuclear energy as the best example, the concentration of political and economic power under state capitalism that exists on the face of the planet. The nuclear industry has been essentially a state-subsidized industry from the very beginning. It has its origins in, in military weapons, which were all state-developed. And uh, there's no doubt that without government ownership subsidy, the nuclear industry would have died uh, years ago. It would have died on the free market.
we see in the conversion to alcohol fuels or nuclear power is our inability to come to terms with the fundamental structural alteration in our economy that is actually required. Structure is an invisible element, and as Gregory Bateson pointed out, we are in some sense addicted to it. It is far easier to substitute uranium for oil or sugarcane for gas and so keep the game going a while longer. But ultimately, the structural issue will have to be faced. Stuart Hill. As um, the uh, outstanding economist uh, Nicholas Georgescu Roygen pointed out, the problem with the market is that future generations are not sitting around the table doing the bidding. If they were, then they wouldn't allow us to do some of the things we presently do. We basically now, because we rely on the market, are able to indulge in what essentially is short-term private gain at long-term public expense. And so at some point, if we're going to survive as a species even, we have to find another way to make our decisions that does not depend on this short-term market approach. What kind of control mechanism do we need? Well, there's a spectrum of approaches that can be taken. We can look at one end of the spectrum to a totalitarian society with highly centralized control and uh, decisions being made by scientists and um, futurologists and high priests of, of values, um, I frankly wouldn't want to live in that society and I hope that that's not the way we go. But the other end of the spectrum is exactly the opposite. Um, a highly decentralized society with small communities being very much independent and responsible for themselves with individuals within those communities who have essentially matured as human beings and become complete human beings. I think in our present society we generally suffer from mass neurosis and mass immaturity, particularly emphasized by this sense of lack of responsibility, that somebody else is, is responsible for the problem, not myself that I can't change the, the picture, um, somebody else has to change it. The change of scale and the change of attitude, which Stuart Hill considers essential, may well spell the difference between a future of plenitude and a future of scarcity. The difference does not yet turn on the availability of resources so much as on how we use them. The choice depends on whether we develop renewable or non-renewable energy sources whether we produce for the satisfaction of needs or the multiplication of desires, whether we favor durability and use value over obsolescence and flash, and finally, on whether we avoid the vast costs of rehabilitating the environment by declining to destroy it any further. Whether we will be satisfied, in other words, partly depends on how we define satisfaction. Victor Furcus is the author of The Future of Technological Civilization and a professor of government at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. He considers the question of whether we can consume less without aggravating social inequality. I think there are, there are several ways of looking at that. Uh, 
problem. One, of course, is to say that you get equality by simply re or redistributing things at a lower level. You, you, you take a smaller pie and you, and you chop it up into smaller pieces. Now, that obviously is going to leave a lot of people uh, un unhappy. On the other hand, we, there's a another way of looking at it is to really ask the fundamental question, increase of what? How, how measured? What is the relationship between uh, economic productivity and actual consumer satisfaction, to say nothing of actual happiness? Uh, there's a recent, uh, uh, not all that recent, book which came out in Canada several years ago by William Lease, The Limits to Satisfaction, which you may or may not know, which actually deals very fundamentally with this from a philosophical point of view. That is, what is the relationship between the commodities which our society produces and which we then go out and, and purchase and actual satisfaction, physical or, or, or spiritual or, or psychic from them? And uh, he raises the distinct possibility by, by implication that if we could reorganize our demand schedule, we would find ourselves receiving a lot more real satisfaction from a lot fewer goods. Whereas the present system is such that no one except a few multimillionaires, is likely to f feel that they have enough because, and even they, are always going to be looking for something new, some new sensation which is promised to them by, by advertising and so forth. If, if, you, if you get this car, you'll, you'll feel 10 years younger, that kind of thing. So that I think we have to, at, at two levels, we have to be prepared to redistribute goods as measured in the normal physical terms but at the same time, we also have to be prepared to rethink what it is that we want out of, of various physical goods that exist in the society. The alternative to such a simultaneous redistribution and redefinition of wealth is greater social inequality, and that is the option which we are now choosing by default. The costs of wringing the last drops of oil out of the earth and the costs of incorporating ecological constraints into existing industrial processes are already combining to create a situation in which it costs more to produce less. It's not hard to imagine who will pay. John Todd. We will become poorer. That's what will happen. Uh, the rich will stay relatively rich, but the gap between the rich and the poor will grow dramatically. And we'll begin to see a historical pattern reemerge in which the majority of humans are second and third class citizenry. Now, what I, I don't feel that has to happen. I don't feel that this, there is anything inevitable about the world becoming a poorer place, that, um, that we go back, we're a small upper classes who are wealthy, and then there is the rest of us. I think it is possible through the kind of knowing and out of that the wisdom that we've been talking about to design societies where there is a high degree of equity where there is a sustainability and these societies can be based almost exclusively on the wind and the sun and their derivatives. In other words, I can see the real possibility of villages, of towns, even cities that are in fact designed so that they can produce their own needs. Again, this is a structural change, but it's not inevitable that people have to become poorer as the cheap energy sources are withdrawn from us. But it will probably happen unless there's some very bold and courageous thinking. Uh, business as usual is not going to work this time round. The time horizon generally employed by economists is summed up in Lord Kane's tarred observation. 
in the long run we shall all be dead, a saying which may now have a resonance which Keynes never intended. If we are ever to achieve what has been called the economics of permanence, it can only be done through a drastic change of scale. Decentralization is the pivotal issue because it's only on the scale of convivial and self-actualizing communities that labor can be substituted for capital without a return to drudgery and what Marx called the idiocy of rural life. A small scale of operation is also demanded in agriculture by the need to recapture and reuse wastes. And in the same vein, renewable energy is only practicable on a small scale. Such a society need not be without cities. Smaller cities than we inhabit at present could conceivably be relatively self-sufficient. If the idea of decentralization creates images of parochialism and suffocation, it is probably because we have not considered the fact that we now have the technology to ensure that a decentralized society could remain a cosmopolitan one. Our ability to imagine such a society, planetary in scope but regional in scale, is mainly limited by our inherited prejudices. Victor Furcus. We use the words centralization and decentralization very loosely. And one of the reasons we, we use them loosely is that our usage stems from the period when modern liberalism got its start, when you had the, the new industrial revolution and you had a, a need from a physical point of view in the productive process to do a certain amount of sure physical centralization. Well, you know, someone sat up there and uh, made the machine run and the machines always cut out the same kind of a little of sort of metallic cookies for whatever purpose they were going to be used and so on. Now we know that it's possible to have very complicated uh, systems with very little centralization. Our communication systems are of such a nature, basically. There are obviously various nodal points where different kinds of lines come into a concentrated contact with each other, but the telephone system is not centralized in any real sense. You can start a call anywhere from within the system and have it end up anywhere else. You can make it, uh, various adjustments in terms of how much time uh, calls take. It's actually much more like the, the living body itself than it is like the old-fashioned machine. So that having planetary coordination does not necessarily mean having centralization in the sense of one point where all the lines come together with somebody or some group sitting up there deciding what's going to take place. But our metaphors, our whole image is, is derived from an early historical era than the present one, and we're unable to, to break away from this kind of a linguistic trap, and I think it is a linguistic trap. Ecology establishes the preconditions for economic activity and sets its limits. Until economic activity had begun to seriously transgress these limits, there was no science of ecology. Liberalism as an economic philosophy, for example, considers nature to be essentially inexhaustible. And for as long as this appeared to be so, problems of social inequality could be projected into the mirage of perpetual growth. In his book, The Future of Technological Civilization, 
Victor Furcus has argued that this philosophy has now become completely untenable. The liberal philosophy as it has existed since the times of, of Thomas Hobbes and John Locke is based upon the premise that society is actually a contractual system in which various individuals and various interest groups compete for power and for privilege. Now this was a very acceptable way of doing things as long as there was plenty to go around, as long as whatever particular group wanted something, it could be appeased to some extent. Now this becomes insupportable, however, at a time when there is not enough to go around. As scarcity becomes more important in the, our economic system, as we have problems of ecological balance, as there are difficulties in reconciling the particular views of particular groups on, on key issues, then it is no longer possible to carry on this program of, of gradual appeasement. And choices have to be made between particular groups. This is the basic crisis of a modern society, particularly in the West. And inflation, I think, is the major, one of the major symptoms, at least in the economic realm, of this problem of trying to take care of, the, of social conflicts by simply yielding to each demand in turn as it is made. Because liberalism has tried to restrain social conflict by appeasing it from the industrial cornucopia, it eventually results in the destruction of the natural environment. It is for this reason that Fergus has described liberalism as the vandal ideology. In order to be able to take care of all of these demands, it was necessary to get things from someplace. And where did they get these various utilities? They got them from nature, from the environment, which was considered to be water, air, and certain kinds of land were considered to be free goods in economic terms. There was no scarcity of them, so they had no value. Now, eventually, of course, this led to the pollution of the water, the pollution of the air, the despoilation of the uh, natural habitat in various ways which cannot continue. So if you talk about vandalism, it's this particular kind of, of grabbing at whatever is around and kind of looting of the, of, the, of the total context in which people live, which is really a form of vandalism. In a book called Ecology as Politics, the French social philosopher André Gortz has addressed the question of ecology from the standpoint of Marxism. Although Gortz finds Marxism and ecology to be theoretically compatible, he acknowledges that in practice, socialism has had many of the same difficulties as liberalism. And it is his trenchant observation that socialism is no better than capitalism if it uses the same tools. Jim Harding has been active in the anti-nuclear movement in Saskatchewan, and in that capacity, he has had a chance to study the interaction of the Marxian left and the ecology movement. He argues that the left's major liability remains its tendency to think in terms of a change of regime rather than of a fundamental reconstruction of the economy along decentralist lines. I think some people like Gortz are attempting to provide the analysis and the vision of a decentralized socialism. But it is fair to say that at this point in time, socialism as inherited from Europe is still plagued by its commitment to centralization. For example, you don't hear very many Marxian or other socialist-inclined people making the ecological critique of Petro-Canada, that the answer to the energy crisis, both in terms of conserving and creating more equitable access to energy is not to move towards even more capital-intensive, non-renewable-based 
systems. You hear that critique from the ecological side, for example. You hear the, the, the people who have thought the issue through more in terms of ecology saying retrofit all Canadian homes in, in a sense of, of good insulation at an estimated $4 billion and you don't need the oil of one syncrude plant estimated at 10 to $14 billion. The more socialist-oriented people have failed to step out of the notion that growth and productivity somehow is the single way to meet human needs equitably. The division of the political spectrum between liberalism and Marxism is clearly undermined by the new considerations proposed by ecology. This unsettling effect of ecology on the old categories of political philosophy is evident in the fact that the ecology movement cuts across the existing ideological boundaries. Jim Harding. At this point in time, people who have dropped out of mainstream politics, and that includes, I think, a growing number of, of people, are seeking a, a new kind of politics that would regroup people on the basis of... Um, of a commitment to redirect the, the, say, large corporate industrial system. And it's interesting that you have segments of, of that commitment in small-c conservatism, even in small-l liberalism, and uh, certainly in, in uh, certain varieties of, uh, of say, non-Stalinist uh, Marxism and socialism the old left-right splits that were based on the support or opposition to government intervention have become secondary and in some ways irrelevant to the kind of new politics that's emerging out of this ecological kind of uh, awareness. Ecology implies the participation of people in fulfilling their own needs. An ecological future contains liberating political possibilities because the scale on which a local economy is sustainable is the same scale on which popular sovereignty is actually practicable. In this sense, an ecological political philosophy might replace abstract freedoms by the possibility of their realization. Victor Furcus has tried to imagine such a future political philosophy under the name of ecological humanism. Ultimately, the most important uh, necessity for human beings, for the human race as a whole, is to live in harmony with nature, to not completely throw off kilter the very delicate balance which exists between the human species and its environment. Hence the ec ecological aspect. On the other hand, many people who call themselves ecologists are people who really don't care much about human beings. They're not so much in, in favor of, of nature as they're, they're opposed to humanity, and I felt it was necessary to modify the usage of, of ecology by bringing in the term humanism to indicate that what was sought for, what we had to search for, was something which would both respect the physical en en environment in which humanity lives and also respect the peculiar qualities of human beings which differentiate them from the rest of nature, both the organic and inorganic. Ecological humanism appeals to me as a, as a philosophy because it gives it provides, as I define it, certain standards from which you can operate. It is, first of all, naturalistic in that it is in accordance with the laws 
of physical nature. It respects the, the universe as we f f find it, rather than tr trying to radically alter it. Secondly, it is immanentist in that it believes that there is no basic distinction between spirit and matter, that it's, at some point these are interchangeable and that we have to seek for our principles within uh, the, the universe as it, as it exists and look to it for, for guidance in, in various kinds of matters which other people might consider to be ideological or, or spiritual. The philosophy which Victor Ferkus proposes already has many practical embodiments. But the vibrancy of this movement for change is often obscured by the tendency of mass media to amplify the crisis of the established order. We remain somewhat mesmerized by the sheer magnitude of our problems. But we also have remarkable abilities to change in crisis. And as the idea that this really is a crisis takes root, this desire to change begins to emerge. Stuart Hill sees this happening in his field of agriculture. Because I am associated with a, uh, a center of ecological agriculture, I'm constantly receiving calls from people who are in the food system who are struggling to find this other way. People who are maybe organic farmers or budding organic farmers or gardeners wanting to find out ways to produce their own food or produce food on a commercial scale without using pesticides and synthetic chemicals. And many of them are proving extremely successful at this. Even though at the moment it's a relatively small area if we look at it in terms of uh, acres of, of agricultural land that is being farmed in this way. On the other hand, if you look at it in relation to the, the, a sustainable vision, my perception of a sustainable system of food production is relatively small areas of land. And, and so it wouldn't make a lot of sense to have enormous farms that were being farmed ecologically because part of the solution to farming something ecologically is to manage small pieces of land. Most people in most developing countries that are producing food are producing food on essentially a garden scale. And in fact, gardens are far more productive than extensive agriculture is. Uh, Ernst Schumacher, the economist who wrote the book Small is Beautiful, tells an interesting story of some agricultural land that was quite productive in England uh, that was built over with a housing estate and when he looked at the data of food production, he found that actually production went up when the housing estate was on there because of the food being produced in the gardens of the homeowners was actually greater than the food that was produced when it was a farm. Even though it was all paved over and the, the amount of land that was under production declined dramatically. This just makes the point that garden-scale food production is a, essentially a forgotten approach to increasing food production. Change is taking place, but the inertia of the old order still binds our imaginations. Contemplating a transformed future may be easier if we remember that our present is already a radical transformation of our past. In fact, the whole history of industrial societies is one of unending transformation. Within living memory, most Canadians still lived on farms. 
and those Canadians who were swept into the cities on a rising tide of cheap oil may now be swept back by new social forces. If we assume that change will come one way or the other, and that there will be a new age, even if it is only a new dark age, then we can see the importance of a positive vision of the future. We end tonight's program with such a vision from John Todd. In some way, most people should learn enough about the living world to produce some of their own food. Whether this is gardening or fish farming in one's house or having an orchard or whatever, I think one of the critical educational steps, and I would say ultimately transformational steps, will be to get some small handle on part of one's food supply. Then the next thing I would say is that beginning at the level of the household, but also working up through to the level of the subdivision and then the village, that one begin to actually become responsible for one's own energy. Now, I don't mean that all the technologies one makes oneself, obviously the solar cell is going to come from a very sophisticated industry, but that the whole design into the subdivision of the household says the majority of our energy will come from the sun or the wind or its derivatives. And then if you start laying this kind of patterning down, um, you begin to see the needs for externals much reduced, but the actual quality of design going up and up and up. And so I actually could foresee in the future settlements, which are gardens, which are pulsing various kinds of energy cycles through them, in which the architecture is exquisite and maybe even close to permanent, settlements which have bio-shelters or arcs that help treat their waste and provide foods, the various kinds of things put together to create a new kind of human landscape. All of the materials, most of the engineering, and certainly the design is available now for profound changes. It's here. The question is whether it will be used. On Ideas Tonight, the second program in our series, Between Two Ages. Heard were John Todd, Stuart Hill, Lester Brown, Jim Harding, and Victor Fergus. The program was prepared and presented by David Cayley. Technician, David Dobbs. Producer, Bernie Looked. A reading list for these programs will be available at the end of the series. If you'd like one, please write us. Our address is Ideas, Post Office Box 500, Terminal A, Toronto, Ontario, M5W1E6. Once again, that's Ideas, Box 500, Terminal A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Tomorrow on Ideas, the second program in our series, The Political Economy of Energy. I'm Russ Germain. Good night.